Welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packoff. Welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And tonight, we'll talk about the current storms of doctrinal confusion, worldliness in the church, as well as problems in society, and how we can calmly navigate through these crises with confidence in God our Lord and His unfailing providence. But first, we want to hear a little bit from EWTN's John Elson about an upcoming special program about an immigrant seminarian who became the first Bishop of Mobile, Alabama, just about four hours south. Now, actually, my producer said it's four hours south. It takes me a little longer, but so much for the speed limits. Anyway, John, what have you yeah. got going here? Well, Father, it's good to be with you. I want to let our audience know, as you mentioned, that we'll be debuting a new special entitled Servant of the South, The Life of Bishop Michael Portier on Sunday, May 15th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Now, this pro program is produced by our friends at 4 p.m. Media down in Alabama, along mm -hmm. with the Archdiocese of Mobile. And, uh, and Michael by Portier, down in Alabama, you mean L.A.? Uh, well, down in Alabama, our Alabama, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Lower Alabama. Lower Alabama, <laughs> L.A., right. So uh, Bishop uh, uh, Michael was born in 1795 in Lyon, France, and at 16 years old uh, joined the seminary. And while he was at seminary, there was a pamphlet written by the missionary bishop, Louis William de Burgh, trying to recruit young French seminarians to come to the Americas, specifically to this area of Louisiana and Alabama. And the pamphlet was very gripping because they needed a certain type of courageous man to be able to become a missionary priest. And so Bishop de Burgh's letter said this, we offer you no salary, no recompense, no holidays, no pension, but much hard work, a poor dwelling, few consolations, many disappointments, frequent sickness, a violent or lonely death, and an unknown grave. So after discerning, uh, Michael decided to travel. <laughs> you could say no to an <laughs> offer like that. Well, and he said yes, and he, he went to uh, he traveled the 65 days across the ocean, uh, finished his theological and English studies at uh, St. Mary's College, spent a year uh, following that to go to New Orleans to minister to black, white, and mixed uh, raced youth. A year later, uh, at the age of 23, becomes a priest, and at the age of 31, eight years later, becomes the bishop of the Apostolic Vicariate of Alabama and the Floridas. So you're talking about an enormous territory, mm -hmm. and uh, the the bishop uh, really he, he was he was on his own. He had the he had to care for three parishes: one in Mobile, one in Pensacola, and the other in St. Augustine, Florida. Now the distance between Mobile and St. Augustine is 442 miles and he, he traveled that distance by horse. He also traveled by rivers. He also traveled uh, to the bays and, and the bayous of, of where the faithful were. He said, whatever the distance, I must see, console, and gather my flock. And so after time went on, he realized, given the distance and the challenges, not only was it the distance, but the yellow fever caused many uh, fathers and mothers to, led to their deaths, leaving many orphans. So he decided to go back to France. He was able to obtain some uh, important financial assistance and some additional priests. And in coming back to this enormous diocese, it was then declared a diocese, he uh, was able to really uh, create institutional anchors. So he, he obviously created parishes, schools, hospitals. He invited the visitation nuns to create a convent and school for girls. 
the, the uh, Brothers of the Sacred Heart to minister to the orphans. He created the Spring Hill College, which was the first four-year college in the state of Alabama. And also uh, the uh, Daughters of Charity, Mother Seton's Order, uh, established uh, the Providence Hospital, which exists today. His crowning achievement was the construction of the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception uh, in Mobile, which is, 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 is an icon of the city today. And the cathedrals were very important because of his French background. Not only did the cathedral physically dominate a space, but it spiritually dominated a space, mm -hmm. and that was really important to him. So like many of the, of the great missionaries uh, that helped build the church that we enjoy today, these missionaries, they didn't ask as they were contemplating to come over to the Americas, you know, a very hostile, rough, unknown land. Sure. They didn't ask, what, what's going to happen to me? They asked themselves, what's going to happen to the people and, and, the, and their souls here if I don't go? Right. And, they, and an expert also said that since they had given up everything, they had nothing to lose. So it's a tremendous story of, of courage, of zeal, of trust in divine providence. Uh, he's a man that uh, is really a, a model for all of us. Even if we're not called to build schools, parishes, and hospitals, we can build the kingdom of God in our own families sure. and in our own communities. So we're very honored to bring his story uh, to our audience. Oh, great. Well, that's good. Look forward to having that. Thank you very much for letting us know about it. And we will be back in just a couple of minutes with tonight's guest. So please stay with us. Welcome back. You may recognize tonight's guest, who is a rough and tumble member of the trio known as the Papal Posse. I don't, none of them have cowboy hats. But anyway, they appear on EWTN's The World Over with Raymond Arroyo. And together with Raymond and with Robert Royal, he attacks, uh, tackles many of the various controversy in the church and the culture. Recently, he worked with a journalist named Diane Montagna on a book-length interview about his life and a broad range of topics relating to the faith, which have been compiled in a brand new book called Calming the Storm, Navigating the Crises Facing the Catholic Church and Society. So please welcome our guest, Father Gerald E. Murray. Father Murray, it's so nice to have you. It's the first time you've been on my show, I think. It's a pleasure to be with you, Father Mitch. Thanks. Absolutely. First Thanks. time. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And, you know, you're, two things I noticed about the book. First, uh, Ms. Montagna is uh, a very fine interviewer. She really knows her stuff. She's well prepared with her questions and asks very pointed questions. But the second thing is, that's a long interview. How long did that take you? Uh, from start to finish, it took about a year to put the book together. We sat down for about three or four days uh, back in 2020 in the fall, okay. and she taped the interviews, transcribed them. Sure. 
And then we went back and forth by emails because she was in Rome at that point. I was in New York. Mm -hmm. We added some new questions. But yeah, it's okay. a long interview, covered a lot of topics. It does. It and does. Uh, yeah, it, it was basically a project that we didn't see right from the start where it would go, but questions kept posing themselves. Sure. And one answer led to a new question. So it was good. Yeah. Now, the first chapter of the book is mostly autobiographical biographical, telling about your family background, your own training, um, your work in the Navy, and your work uh, in parishes in New York. Um, uh, why did you include a biographical section? Well, Diane Montagna had done a book with Bishop Athanasius Schneider called Christus Vincit. Yes. And she did similarly a uh, first chapter of his biographical background, and everybody liked that. I particularly enjoyed it. So mm -hmm. right. Uh, right. the idea is before the priest presents the teaching of the church, people want to know why did you become a priest in the first place? Sure. You know, you get that question all the time. Sure. Uh, so then we trace it back to where I grew up, my parents, my sisters, Jesuit education in high school, right. and then subsequently right. for canon law. And really, at one of our finest high schools, you know, Regis High School in New York is one of the finest in the American assistancy. No, it's a great high school. It's where I studied Latin. It's where I learned, you know, the classics, and yeah. it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, very uh, much so. And then talked about, I went to Dartmouth College, secular school, but had a wonderful Newman chaplain, Father Bill Nolan was his name. He was there for 35 years. And during that time, 35 men entered the seminary from Dartmouth. And even a couple of women joined the convent, including Mother Louise Marie Flanagan of the Sister Servants of the Eternal Word here in yeah, Irondale. Just, just down the road from us. Yeah, she was a good friend in college. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then we went into the seminary training. I had a wonderful seminary experience at Dunwoody, which is a seminary of the Archdiocese of New York. Uh, we had a great moral theologian, Monsignor William Smith, Yes. who you may have met or talked to or read. Yeah. Read, yeah. Brilliant man, brilliant, great moral theologian. Uh, yeah, so that was kind of my educational experience. Cardinal O'Connor ordained me a priest, uh, John O'Connor, and then nine years later, he let me become both a Navy chaplain and sent me to study canon law. So I spent four years in Rome in the mid-90s, uh, studied at the Gregorian University, and got a doctorate in canon law and have been using it ever since. And you're a few years younger than I. Uh, you started seminary in what year again? Uh, 1980. 80. And would you consider yourself part of that John Paul II group of priests, you know, that came up in the 80s and 90s? I would. You know, I went to see uh, St. John Paul II when he spoke when he celebrated Mass on Boston Common in, I think it was September of uh, 1979. Mm -hmm. And I was already thinking of becoming a priest at that point, but that solidified my uh, desire. Mm -hmm. And then I was so inspired by his writings, his teachings, uh, yeah. the Catechism, yeah. Veritatis Splendor. So yes, he uh, very much so. Because, the, the, you know, you describe that while your training at Dunwoody was quite good. Uh, you also describe how the, some of the mood in the country in the 70s and 80s, in which not all the seminaries were you know, uh, uh, of the same quality, and some of them were 
actually mocking uh, Eucharistic devotion, yes. uh, teaching a number of errors, and, and even you describe how some of your scripture teachers were not exactly uh, teaching, you know, solid doctrine. Mm. You know, so, so this, it, it's one of the nice things about your autobiographical section is it also gives a picture from the perspective of one person uh, what the church was already going through in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yes. No, very forward. much so. You know, both my parents are lawyers. They're devout Catholics. My dad's gone to the Lord. Uh, but they were, you know, intent on us becoming practicing Catholics our whole lives. They mm -hmm. wanted to make sure we knew the faith. Uh, but there were a lot of challenges. You yeah. know, I was, I remember in high school, I uh, started reading The Wanderer, the Catholic Register in college. You know, I was familiar with National Review. So a lot of influences to try and say that, you know, Catholicism can't change overnight because it's the revelation of Christ explained over time by the magisterium. Mm -hmm. We can't just cast things aside. Unfortunately, Dunwoody, the seminary was very traditional in most aspects. Scripture studies, they were technically very sophisticated, but I, I always said dogma was taught in relation to Scripture, mm -hmm. but Scripture was not taught in relation to dogma, mm -hmm. and that was, I mm -hmm. thought, a problem. Yep. I think that's you know something that's right. Uh, too often the temptation, but you know because that's my field too, yes. Scripture, is to teach the Scripture only as literature. Literature it is, and we need to understand the language, forms of speech, etc. But the reason we read it is because it's true. I mean. I don't draw many doctrines out of the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Enuma <laughs> Elish out of Babylon. I sure. Guess it's just not no, and then deal. the Sunday sermon should bring alive the Old Testament background of the New Testament events, how they all you know reveal Christ. Right. And that's I'm so grateful to Professor Scott Hahn and colleagues and similar scholars who are helping you know this generation of seminarians to have a more preachable uh, training in the Scriptures. Right. Right. So. But this gets us to the other parts of the book. Um, you also you know, deal with a lot of serious questions. Well, I think the, the very starting point is the, the crisis in our culture mm. about what is reality yeah. and then the way that that crisis is also affecting many people in the church, even leadership, in regard to, you know, accepting the cultural values sometimes. So what is this crisis in the Western culture that you talk about? Yes, well, Monsignor Smith, to go back to him, he said, in the end, all theology problems are really philosophy problems. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Mm -hmm. Meaning if you don't understand the basic categories uh, that God in creation has established, Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't understand that reality is a gift, it's a given, it's something that we interact with but we don't control in the sense of giving it a meaning and a purpose. It already has a meaning and a purpose. So we have to discover it. There's an expression I use in the book which I've heard different places now called the plasticity of reality. 
Mm-hmm. And this is a modern conceit. And we, we what see. What does that mean to be plastic? Pla- yeah, you know, plasticity, plastic, before it's shaped, it's kind of amorphous. It's a blob, and then you put it in a mold and you come up with something. Mm-hmm. So plastic can be one thing today. You can use the same material, make something tomorrow. It's, it doesn't have its own inherent nature. This is not how creation is. You know, man has created male and female, and there's a purpose in God's design of that. Uh, reality is what it is. Uh, it's not something that we can overthrow. We can mm-hmm. try to. The rebellion against reality is what we have. When you have a man who says, I'm a woman and wants to compete in swim meets against women and claim he's the women's victor, what we have is a man winning a woman's race. Yeah. But the society, our culture is telling us, you're a bigot if you deny that, you know, that the swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania is really a man. He is a man. The female swimmer who lost her place because of him was done in injustice. But society's bought into this notion. I can become a woman, I can become a man, I can do this. All kinds of problems there. Yeah, and this plasticity uh, applies to all kinds of ways. People want to discuss their identities and that they can make their identity whatever they feel. It's it's an emotional uh, feeling, it seems, but it's not connected to the concrete reality of having double X chromosomes in every cell of your body or an XY chromosome in every cell of your body. That's it. Yeah. That's, and then on the moral level, you know, how should human beings live together and cooperate? The plasticity of reality would say, well, you're only saying that because you want to achieve this end. You want power over others, so you make laws about human rights. But no, human rights are not universal. We have human rights in one country can be illegal in the other, and you shouldn't be upset about it. No, this again, if you don't believe in reality and creation, what do you believe in? Power. Who's ever in charge tells other people what to do and think. That's the danger in our society. It's really what communism was all about, Nazism. In the Catholic Church, when people start canceling you know, people because they don't buy into the LGBT myth, for mm-hmm. instance, you know, that God made some people to be constitutionally homosexual or bisexual. No, the Catholic Church understands reality because revelation combined with natural thinking and reasoning has produced you know, a perfectly workable understanding of what we're supposed to do. In, in fact, it's one of the ironies of history that certainly it is true that scientific development began in Mesopotamia, in ancient Babylon and Assyria. They were doing really fine mathematics mm-hmm. and astronomical research. Egypt did also. The Greeks also were doing that. But their pagan societies could not sustain science because they believed that the sun was a god, the moon was a god, and so on. Mm. And in the Bible, Revelation says, no, everything was created by God. There's only one God. And everything is a creature. So you can study anything. And it's Jewish and Christian culture that made science possible by demythologizing all of nature. Exactly. And since we know God is a God of reason, 
and he's given us, we're creating his image, so we have the power of reason, the world is intelligible. Yes. And, and this is really one of the conceits yes. of the modern age. Yes. It's not really intelligible to the average person. Therefore, they come up with explanations that are wrong and prejudicial. No. The, average, the common estimation of mankind is proven true again and again and again. And when, exactly, if we believe in a reasonable God as the Jewish and Christian faiths teach us, well, our, our duty is conform our reason to God. Right. Not invent new categories or pretend there are no categories. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are, you know, morally speaking, you have a societal destruction when you teach people there's no natural law. Every society is ruled by powerful people. So the job is become the powerful person and you can tell everybody else what to do. And there is no natural law. Formula for disaster. Yeah, I, I would assert that the most powerful person or the richest person on this earth still would have serious problems if dropped from the Empire State <laughs> Building because the law of gravity will win. Exactly, no doubt about it. And that's it, reality imposes itself. That's another, yes. you know, uh, Cardinal Newman said, we're all Aristotelian whether we know it or not. Yeah. Reality imposes itself, it can't be avoided in the, in the material and physical sense, but intellectually we can pretend. And that's, we yes. really have a pretend and mythology culture going on right now. You know, I love this follow the science, <laughs> follow science about COVID prevention. Yes. How about follow the science about male swimmers swimming in female races? Yeah. Uh, where, where's the outrage when that happened? There is no way, because again, it's a powerful people want to impose their vision on others. And, and that's bad. The other thing too, is that there is a manipulation through guilt feelings, not actual guilt, but through guilt, em, guilty emotions to cow people into saying that, uh, well, it's okay that the best swimmer is a man. Mm. Uh, the best woman swimmer yeah. is a man. Yeah. Uh, that's okay. Or to, uh, to uh, choose a Supreme Court justice who won't say what a woman is and pro presumably won't say what a human person is or a lot of other things. Right. It, it's, this is problematic. And then to guilt us and threaten us if we don't agree with the pretense reminds me of the emperor's new clothes. And it's a form of manipulation. And people know that Christians are told, love your neighbor. So misunderstanding of love is never annoy your neighbor. So if you're annoying me, you're not loving me. Therefore, stop annoying me and by, you have to do, affirm everything I say. Yes. Again, that's a mytho mythological way of looking at life. Yeah. You know, the best thing that can happen to someone who's mistaken is that someone calls attention to that fact and convinces you, yeah, you're right, I was wrong. Yeah. That's, that's realism and Christian humility. Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, and it's affecting not just highly politicized issues, about men swimming in women's meats. Um, but it also affects uh, things as basic as answers on math questions, answers about English grammar, the quality of literature, what happened in history so that solidly deceptive books like Howard Zinn are used as textbooks, even though it's patently uh, deceptive, 
some would even call it a lie. Mm. Um, you know, th these things are accepted, and it's, so it's not just about you know fluff. It, it's whether or not somebody will give you the correct change when you buy something in the store. <laughs> well, you've, you've heard this expression, the narrative, and basically the left says we're going to control the narrative. Yes. So the way children were taught American history, instead of a story of liberty and accomplishment and penance because of slavery and national war that led to the end of that institution, we basically get a completely negative history of people. Mm -hmm. This whole notion of white privilege, if you're a white person, you have to apologize for being white. This is ridiculous. I, we're all sinners. I have to apologize for my sins, yes. and I have to correct errors from the past in as much as I can do that, meaning if there are inst existing institutions that are unjust, let's get rid of them. Mm -hmm. we, we're doing that with Roe v. Wade, thank God. You know yeah. what I mean? There is progress in human society, but uh, you know, manipulation and deceit, you know, error, whatever you want to call it, to tell people you can't rest in peace simply because you're a white man, you know, who has privilege mm -hmm. and everybody else is suffering simply because of the fact you're on the planet. No, please. Yeah. Now, these are issues that we are grappling with in society. And it, it's, it's every day, you know, that, and this battle is taking place and, um, our schools are being filled with a lot of this and parents are just one of the blessings of the pandemic is parents watched right. what was being taught to their children on the internet. You know, when they, they had these, the Skype and et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and now parents are the need, in need of discipline because they're furious. But besides these battles in the culture, we have battles within the church and serious problems. And this has been something, that, one of the reasons that you know canon law to address yes. the problems within the church in a rational, legal way, following good form. What do you see as the problems that have to be addressed within the church? Well, one of the main problems we have now is the uh, refusal to believe in Catholicism as, an, as a u united and integral body of doctrine. So it's basically cafeteria Catholicism, pick and choose. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to do that. Right now, for instance, the German bishops are saying the catechism has to be rewritten about homosexuality. The church is wrong on that. Mm -hmm. uh, the Archbishop of Luxembourg said that in an interview uh, a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the authority of the church wants us in certain places to deny what the church has always taught. Uh, this is unheard of. This is going back to the Aryan crisis. You know, this is, this is a very serious problem. Well, the, the, apparently the German bishops are calling this the synodal way, but what do they mean by that phrase, synodal way? Well, in Germany, they started a process even before the Synod on Synodality, which Pope Francis announced. Uh, the Synodal Way is a meeting of some German bishops and a group of the, the official German Catholic lay group. And they have delegates who meet together. They come up with propositions. Their propositions include blessing of homosexual unions, female priests and bishops, popular election of bishops, removal of bishops. Uh, they are not supportive of the moral teaching of the church. Um, and they vote on these propositions, and the lay people have the same vote as bishops. 
it's a disaster. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's seriously, seriously for Cardinal Muller has been very strong, who was the former prefect mm -hmm. of the Congregation Doctrine of Faith, saying that the German church is going into heresy. Mm -hmm. And he's absolutely right. Well, if I may quote from sure. your book, um, in regard to the synodal ways, you wrote, Episcopal support for or tolerance of heretical teaching is a sure sign that the German hierarchy is plainly failing to carry out its duty to teach, govern, and sanctify the flock of Christ. This must be dealt with firmly by the Pope or things will only get worse. The fact that the majority of German bishops have so far not rejected this act of self-destruction is indicative of the gravity of the situation. Um, you know, this is fairly serious. And so folks understand, we haven't seen large groups of bishops, uh, be, you know, start to teach contrary to the faith in public. That's that, right. This is a new phenomenon. Well, our, no, it's not Not new. historically. Yeah, you, you young people <laughs> don't remember the okay. old days. I remember, <laughs> no, I, I don't quite remember the uh, fourth and fifth century, mm. but in the fifth century. Yes, that's true. 80% of the bishops of the East denied that Jesus Christ is God the Son. Yeah, the eternal Son of God, yeah. You know, 80%. Yep. And it was the lay faithful who didn't deny it and who helped very strongly to bring them back. That's right. No, what we have now it precisely is something old making its, you know, reappearance. Um, the problem is, of course, with modern communication, uh, we now, all of these bad teachings are spread throughout the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we pray that Pope Francis will do more to stop it. He did write a letter to the German hierarchy about a year and a half ago, said to them, the synodal way should not proceed in a way that's destructive in the church, but they paid no heed to the Pope and they've continued to do it. And Cardinal Marx, you know, he recently said, the catechism is not written in stone, meaning the churching, teaching on, the, on homosexuality needs to change. Mm -hmm. Now think about this. The only reason I know who Cardinal Marx is is because he was made a bishop and a cardinal by the church. He exercised authority. So he wants me to believe I should listen to him as an authority figure, but not believe the teachings that he's supposed to authoritatively defend. It's, con you know, dissonance, uh, cognitive dissonance, they call it. Yeah. You, can't, you can't pretend to be a Catholic bishop who's supporting the faith while at the same time undermining it. Yeah. But he's trying that. He, if he doesn't believe treats church and he should quit, because that's the only intellectually honest way of dealing when you have a serious divergence with the church. Now, my prayer is that he will repent, but he's bold. He hasn't changed, and he's not the only one. This, it's, we have to pray for the German situation, support people like Cardinal Muller, who's speaking out forcefully. Uh, Bishop Cordelione and Bishop Aquila here in the United States recently signed a letter rebuking the German bishops. Mm -hmm. Now, some people say, why? We don't want controversy in the church. I, I, who wants controversy? But I also, I, more important than that is, I want to defend the truth because the, the truth will set you free. Yeah. Not somebody's theory or somebody's emotion or making people feel good by agreeing with them. So we have to fight. I think we need to pay close attention to recent history. In the mainline Protestant churches, 
they have made all of these changes that they, they, they already exist. How has that worked out? <laughs> and I like, you're from New York City, and I, I like to point out a, a sad reality that the founding religions of this, of the colonies were the uh, Puritans, who became Congregationalists and United Church of Christ, and then the uh, uh, Episcopalians or Anglicans in those days, and the Presbyterians. And there are about five times as many Jewish people in your city of New York as there are Presbyterians in the whole country. Mm. That doesn't speak well for a religion that's here since the founding of the colonies. Yep. And Episcopalians are about, there are about four times as many Jewish people in New York City as Episcopalians. Mm. They've done all this stuff. Sure. And it's, the, their membership has dropped because it wasn't true. Correct. No, Cardinal Newman predicted this. Cardinal Newman said in a famous speech he gave in Rome, the Biglietto speech, that the, the problem of the modern age is the non-dogmatic religion, the pretense that you can create a religion which is essentially the church of what's happening now. Mm -hmm. What do people like? What do they want? We'll give it to them. Well, you know, that's the circus. You, you, want, you want to have fun? Go to the circus. You want to know about how to get saved? You go to the church. And which church says we're the true church and this is the true doctrine? That's the Catholic church. Yes. We should not play around with this. Well, the other side of playing around with it is that, A, this is not our toy. Right. This, the church is God's, and the sacraments are God's sacraments. It's not my mass. Mm -hmm. It's not yours. Right. It's our Lord's. And he will call priests, bishops, cardinals, and popes to the judgment. And we have to answer not to the culture. They won't be there. Right. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the one we have to answer to. And this is, this is key for all of us. We have to take a break. We're going to come back in a couple of minutes and try to take some of your questions and comments. So please stay with us. We are discussing the brand new book, Calming the Storm, Navigating the Crises Facing the Catholic Church and Society, which was written by Father Gerald E. Murray. And of course, this is available at EWTNRC.com, our religious catalog. So EWTNRC.com, where it's item number 19. 29, which is before both of us were born. All right, we have a caller. Thomas, yes, where are you Father. calling from? Tennessee, Kingsport, oh, Tennessee. 
Well, that Thomas, I see. Good to yes, hear from Bob. you. What, I, what, what can we do for you this fine evening? Now, I have a question, a controversial question for oh, Father Carroll. Sure. Okay, here's my question. Why are some of our bishops, including Cardinal Wilton Gregory, allowing President Joe Biden to receive communion given his, his pro-abortion stance? Well, the answer is that uh, Cardinal Gregory and others disagree with my reading of canon law. Canon law, canon 915, tells us that those who notoriously or publicly uh, reject uh, teachings of the church are to be denied Holy Communion. And it's quite clear that uh, our president, along with Speaker Pelosi and others, do not accept the teaching of the church that it's gravely immoral to kill unborn children by abortion. Uh, they give scandal by receiving communion, and uh, canon law says they should not be given communion. Unfortunately, not all the bishops want to enforce this. They would disagree and say, well, it's not quite clear that we should do it, but I think it is. Well, one of the arguments is that they don't want um, distribution of Holy Communion to be used as a political tool. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, or a political weapon. Right. To even use that phrase. Sure. Um, how do you answer that? Well, to uphold canon law is not a political act. It's an act of religious obedience to the faith of the church because the church teaches us that it alone gives the law. It applies the, the revealed doctrine and the moral teaching in a way that's practical. So who, who gets to receive communion? There are all kinds of regulations regarding it. Now, people who are conscious of grave sin, they should withhold themselves from Holy Communion, but those whose sin is public or whose offense, in this case, you know, supporting abortion, uh, this is a grave scandal to the people because, you know, in the case of President Biden, he receives communion on Sunday, and then when the Roe v. Wade decision is leaked, he gets up in front of the nation and says, we've got to defend the so-called right to abortion. He's saying the American people need to continue to have children killed with government sanction in the womb of their mothers and that I'm a Catholic and I think this is it. And then he tried to pretend that all religions have taught this, which again, that's just, on his case, wrong reading of history. He slipped up and said, of unborn child, by the way. He didn't dehumanize the, the unborn child by calling it a fetus or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's a big problem. It's no doubt it a is. problem. And I, I hope our bishops will get more serious about this. And I think that the bishops support a number of politicians who are concerned about issues of social justice because the politicians identify themselves as Matthew 25 Christians. In mm. other words, whatever you do to least my brethren, you do to me. I, I was hungry, thirsty, naked, in prison, and sick, and you cared for me. And they want to see that. But on the other hand, that argument works against them on abortion. It's hard to see someone who is more least of all the brethren of Christ than a child who is helpless in a womb. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you're going to do to the, what you do to the least of my brethren you do to me, if you want to cut them into pieces, as you see at the end of that gospel, again, you answer to Jesus. Right. And the ones who, in the gospel, 
they don't even harm anybody. They just don't do good. They neglect. And yes. they go to hell. Right. That's true. If you harm, yeah. you're putting your soul in grave yes. danger. No, and then that's we, the message of the president has to be you are endangering <laughs> your own salvation by endorsing and promoting and propagating abortion in the United States. So And that this has nothing to do with supporting or denying any political party's platform. Yeah. If any, anybody who's pro-life, doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, Independent, the Catholic Church says you're doing God's work in being pro-life. So, yeah. yeah, we, look, when it comes to feeding the hungry, we go to Congress and say, you know, do what you can. And the Americans are very generous people. Yeah. But we have to stop this legalized practice forced on us by the Supreme Court almost 50 years ago. And hopefully this is going to end from the point of view of the Supreme Court, but then the battle will continue. Yeah, because, yeah, because like in my go, state, it'll, it'll go to the states. The states, and please, if it's wrong to kill a child in, in Montana, it's wrong to kill the same child in New York. Yeah. So that's going to be the next battle. Yeah, but I think also what's key to this is our own evangelization about the sacredness of human life. Yes. It's not a political issue. Of course. It's it has a, a political. It has a political aspect, right? Because the politicians intrude on the morals realm to try and legalize immorality, and we call them on that. But a lot of politicians want to legalize prostitution now, and they want to call it sex work and make it into a human right. And, and we say, no, this is a violation of women's rights. It's a violation of all that we hold dear. When people are, you know, feel compelled, they have to make money through prostitution. We say, no, society should come to your help, but we're going to stop you know, to try and commercialize your body. Yeah. But no, there's a lot of problems here. Yeah. We have another caller. Hello, Maria? Yes. Where are you calling from? I'm from California. Great. And your question? I have a question regarding abortion situation in this country. Mm -hmm. Are Catholics who believe abortion is evil? How would you reconcile our faith with pro-life politicians who allow exceptions for having an abortion? Mm -hmm. Are they allowed to receive communion? And how about us voters? So you'd be referring to those politicians who say, I'm against abortion except in the case of rape or danger to a child. We don't allow the, exceptions. Danger to the mother, I mean. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so in those cases, so how do you support that? Yes, well, uh, John Paul II and Benedict did uh, issue teachings saying in the legislative field, if you can, if what's possible in the judgment of, you know, rational people, a, restrict, a more restrictive law is possible, not a totally restrictive law, then you, you can legitimately vote to restrict most cases of abortion, but you should continue to work to outlaw it in all cases because there is no justification ever for killing an infant. Now, there are situations in which you will have to, you know, there'll be problems like an ectopic pregnancy, and that's, a, you know, rare, but it's something where a child is growing in the part of the fallopian tube, it can't grow naturally, so there's an indirect abortion when you do medical treatment to end that. But, you know, the fact that your child is the result of a rape, the death penalty is not applied because you're conceived through a rape, it should never be applied that way. No. You know, and, and incest, the same thing. Incense is a horrible crime, but you shouldn't have the person put to death because of it, so. Well, well I, I think it's important to remind people that if you catch the rapist, mm -hmm. 
you do not get a chainsaw and cut off his arms and legs. Right, right. exactly. And smash his skull. You don't do right. Our Constitution does not allow cruel and unusual punishment. It's against the law. That's right. Why would you do to the child that's a victim of the rape what you would not do to the criminal who did the rape? Yeah. This is... Yeah. Well, this is where we need a legal strategy to have the uh, legal personhood of unborn children codified in law, which yes. is what we don't have. Yes. And therefore, you know, stopping abortion has a state interest in the developing child, but it's not the, the equal protection amendment protections given to human beings right. who are subject to United States law. That's got to change. That should be, you know, the next strategy, the, the pro-life movement. Next goal. Yeah. We have another caller. Hello, Judy. Hello, Father. Where are you calling uh, from? I'm calling from Endicott, New York. Okay. Um, and what and, can we do for you? Well, thank you, Father Mitch, and thank you, Father Murray, for your um, conviction and your courage for the truth. And this is my concern and my question. I recently went to my nephew's first Holy Communion, um, and one of the children in the class was a young girl who identified as a boy. And she was allowed to dress as a boy, and she received her first Holy Communion uh, identifying as a young boy. Uh, my concern is, number one, is in this allowing this child to receive her first Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin because she is really a child of God as a girl. And why isn't our pastor or our priest and our bishop standing up against this and saying, let's counsel this family and it was awkward for everybody who was participating in this First Holy Communion to witness this and seeing this child to be allowed to receive her First Holy Communion as a boy. It was a very confusing moment, and it's very saddening and disheartening for many people uh -huh. in, in, the, in the church. Thank, thank you for that question, Judy. I had not heard about such a thing. I haven't either, and I'm very upset to hear about it. Now, we'll make one precision. We can't assume that this child is in the state of mortal sin yes. by dressing up as the opposite sex. Right. The child is being manipulated, I think, by adults, or the child is in a game-playing mode, whatever is happening. Now, the good order of the Catholic Church should not allow this to happen in a ceremony like that because uh, one of the essential teachings of the Church is God made them male and female and didn't make any mistakes in the process. So right. we have to reaffirm that and we also have to face, you know, we're, we're facing a challenge from the gender mob to go out there and undo cultural and religious norms. Mm -hmm. We should never allow the Catholic Church First Communion Ceremony to become a battlefield, you know, in this case with this imposition. If the child will not dress as the girl that she is, she should be told, well, when you're ready to dress like a girl, then you can have your First Communion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's right about presuming that right. she's in a state of mortal sin. We can't do uh, that. Th there's, yeah, you know, this... Uh, as I've said many times, you know, judgment of the soul is God's job. That's management. Right. I'm only in sales. <laughs> I can present the teaching of church. That's what we do. Yes. But the judgment of a soul, we have to sure. uh, leave to God our Lord. Um, but we have to deal with the fact that this has an effect on 
a lot of people. And, yeah. and that's why she's correct to say that the pastor needs to work with the family and understand what's going on here. This is very complicated, right. but there's a lot going on and he should do that. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, uphold the good order of Catholic teaching and, you know, assert that the Catholic Church is not going to become a place where you can score points by doing something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning the parents who go in, doing this. It can't be dealt with the day before first holy. Right. Communion. Well, this should have been. If this was probably known in the past. Well, this you have the same problem. Should children who want to dress every day of the year in the mm -hmm. clothing of the opposite sex and yeah. consider themselves to be different than what they are, should that be allowed in Catholic schools? I don't think so, yeah. because it's disruptive and a counter witness. Yeah. And, as, and it, this has nothing to do with an identity, because the, the church teaches you are what you are when you're born. Yeah. You're not a man in a girl's body, as people would claim. So, mm. no. yeah. We have an, another caller. Hello, Ron. Uh, yes, Father. Hi, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Dearborn, Michigan. Great. And your question? Well, the question is, uh, uh, is a concern when from some time ago I heard a very disturbing uh, statistic that as many as 40% of Catholics or more do not believe in the real presence in the Eucharist mm -hmm. or they're at least agnostic about it. They have mm -hmm. a real faith problem mm -hmm. of believing in the real presence. Mm -hmm. Is that is the church trying to address that? Uh, the American bishops are. They've just started a Eucharistic renewal which will um, lead to a National Eucharistic Congress in a couple of years. They've appointed priests who are missionaries of the Eucharist to go out and preach. Uh, the American bishops have seen, seen those statistics. They are, sad to say, reliable. Now, why did we get there? Well, I have a lot of theories, one of them which is desacralized liturgy. If you don't honor the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament at Mass with reverence and external uh, signs of faith, then people are going to lose touch. We also have the bad catechetical teaching. In other words, people never really had an explanation of transubstantiation, the meaning of the consecration, you know, what is the nature of a sacramental presence of the Lord. Uh, and then we have the general, you know, Protestant influence of our culture. And for the Protestant world, almost 100%, there are some exceptions, but most Protestants think the Eucharist is a symbol of Christ. He gave it at the Last Supper as a fellowship meal. And Catholics who don't pay attention can slip into that kind of thinking. I will never forget a conversation when uh, a seminarian was listening to a talk I gave on transubstantiation and he corrected me saying, oh no, that's not church teaching anymore. And, you know, uh, it, it's transsignification. Wow. And I said, well, actually you're not right. <laughs> uh, Pope St. Paul VI very clearly taught in an encyclical that this is the teaching, yes. as did Vatican II and Council of Trent, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So, um, but as a seminarian, that he was convinced that it was false to right. teach, only re re represented his teachers. Right. And the liturgies where the center is on our community and on us, and the in the old days where the Blessed Sacrament was considered a distraction during Mass, so they removed the Blessed Sacrament from the church. 
who's the main attraction here? Mm. I don't, not, if it's not Jesus, I don't know who it is. All right. Yeah, no, right? Yeah. yeah. It's what it is. It is what it is. Now, I want people to uh, know that you can follow Father Murray on Twitter. It's at Gerald Murray 8, uh, the at sign, okay? Uh, Gerald Murray 8. And the book that we've been discovering, we can think more about these issues uh, in, in, from reading the book. It's called Calming the Storm, Navigating the Crises Facing the Catholic Church and Society by our guest, Father Gerald E. Murray. You can get it at EWTNRC.com where it's item number 1929. Thank you for coming all the way from New York City. We appreciate you being here. And if you join me in blessing our audience, may Almighty God bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We can bring Father Murray and all the other guests as well as the Papal Posse and the Raymond Royal because the shows are brought to you by you. So please keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you and God bless.